1: Please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel
0: with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun.
1: This is Creativity and Captivity, I'm Pat Hazel. Today I visit with an extraordinary comedic character actor recognized for his salute to the lunacy and legacy of Groucho Marx and his portrayal of the outrageous Latin lover Caesar in Teatro Zanzani. He shares insights on the importance of preparation when creating and channeling characters, and the value of focusing on quality performance in every show. Stay tuned for my dialogue with a man of many hats, writer, director, theatrical barnstormer, and undeniably tour de farce performer, Frank Ferrante.
0: That spark of electricity, a skipping
1: stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery. The curse of creativity. La la, 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 la. La, la, la,
0: Thank you, Pat. I like tour de farce. I love it.
1: Well, that's how I think of you because you are a great actor and you do know pathos, but you have the ability to play big but hit people in the heart. So talk to me a little bit about that because you have taken on characters like Groucho and Max Prince, who's sort of the Sid Caesar in Laughter on the 23rd Floor. And How do you do that? How do you maintain that sort of buoyancy at the same time as you have that heart?
0: A lot of these roles I've played have been in Neil Simon plays, whether it's Oscar Madison in The Odd Couple or Max Prince in Laughter on the 23rd Floor. And they're both tragic figures steeped in the humor of... You know the trappings of a great Neil Simon piece. I uh, I think it's all about anchoring to the truth of someone like the Sid Caesar inspired character, like Max Prince, or even in this wild, outrageous character of the Caesar, which is a character that I've done for twenty years in the circ realm, which is very interactive. Is a larger than life. It's kind of a Latin lover esque character, but he feels deeply. He's R- rageful. He's joyful. He's lustful. he And uh, these are all things I can pull from uh, <laughs> as an actor. And there is a fine line. You know, Zero Mostel is one of those guys that was a master at that, and Nathan Lane does it so well. Uh, but, you know, you play it as, you know, you play it straight, and you have a great script and a great character that you're supported. But when I speak to a cast on a first day of rehearsal, Pat, I'll talk about the, the caliber of actors that were in Neil Simon plays. Sometimes Neil Simon is looked down upon because his work is done so often and by so many from the amateur level up to, you know, up through Broadway and the West End. It's almost looked down upon or went through a period where where it was. And I thought there's a reason why George C. Scott and Maureen Stapleton were cast in Plaza Suite. There's a reason that Jack Albertson and Sam Levine are cast for uh, Sunshine Boys and the list goes on. So you've got Great writing with great direction. People like, people like Mike Nichols who would do Odd Couple and uh, you had the greatest talent all in play at the same time. So, you know, someone like George E. Scott, this is not a, a, a milk toast of, a, of an actor. This is a, a raging, roaring performer who can also deal with subtlety, you know, nuance. So the, the range is what's interesting to me. The range, not just of the actors who have portrayed some of these larger than life roles that you and I have come to love, but the character, the kind of the complexity of the characters that Anil Simon comes up with, he allows for it because he's truthful. Most of these scenarios within his work are tragic. Two middle-aged men are divorced with children and have to room together. It's not an ideal scenario. It's a tragic situation. They've lost their homes, they've lost their money, they've lost their wives— They've lost self-respect. <laughs> and um, that's what's going on. Sunshine Boys, two dying comedians who hate each other are brought together for one final performance. I mean, you can go on and on.
1: Sure. And the way he writes realistic conflict mm-hmm. underneath all of that and realistic life scenarios. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about Neil Simon because we do both have an affection for his content. Mm-hmm. And he was an unbelievable writer. Right. There's so many times. Even when I was very young and I saw uh, Barefoot in the Park for the first time, mm-hmm. I was so enamored with the walk up to the fifth or sixth floor apartment. Oh, this is what life is really like for a newly married couple in a city with the hassle. I I didn't realize really, because I wasn't really a student of the theater per se at the time, that when I was connecting to mm-hmm. Brighton Beach Memoirs or Biloxi Blues or Broadway Bound, I was like, wait, this is the same dude writing literally within years of each other, like that's that's a, a lot of content to come from one brain and sometimes from a relationship like the goodbye girl. I don't model my writing after him, but I admire his ability to keep a structural armature of a real life story mm-hmm. and real weight, light and accessible and conversational. And he really poured it out on the page. He's got some great uh, memoirs. I'm sure you've read.
0: Re- yeah, Rewrites is that the first one.
1: And The Play Goes On is the other one. Yes. But you played in Laughter on the 23rd Floor based on Sid Caesar's Your Show of Shows, which was Neil's actual experience and his brother Danny and Mel Brooks. They were all writers on that show for him. And when I saw it on Broadway, I did see Nathan Lane playing the role of Max Prince. Mm-hmm. And I had written on sitcoms. This is the same crazy energy of being afraid of the boss wanting to get approval and you've had the pleasure of playing that role but also directing the show mm-hmm. so tell me about your perspective as a director when you're trying to get everyone to do the lines right and the blocking right and when there's so many laughs people want to hit for the fences everywhere right so how do you how do you control that so that the painting is nuanced all across?
0: Well, uh, you cast pros who get his rhythms, uh, his tempo, and I think that's harder to do because we're getting further away from that. I've generally cast people who've done a lot of Simon, and um, economy. And when you know, When I direct a play like that, it's every finger movement counts, because you don't want to pull from the laugh. You don't, you know, it's every word, it's every syllable needs to be laid out the way he's laid it out. It's very precise, as you know, Simon. So... I go in with a lot of research. I share my research with the cast. I bring the research there. We spend, I don't spend a lot of time doing so-called table work where you sit around and discuss. I do some in the first, I do a few hours of that, and then we just, really it's about doing it and getting into our bodies. So I, uh, again, it, to me it's economy, rhythm, and it's how do you make it authentic and yet zip, the, some those lines are written to be shot out. And Kaufman and, and Hart are the same way. But the bottom line is there's great truth to it. Simon makes you laugh and makes you cry. I just saw your, your show. It's the same, very similar in its effect, that one moment you're laughing and you, you're taken generally by the end by the drama of the piece. I think all these people that create, you know, it's this age old thing, Pat, isn't it, that there's great sadness in those who make mirth and there's great sadness in Groucho Marx. And a feeling of being an outsider. There's great sadness, not being part of, of the, the you know society. He's he's out the, he's on the outside looking in. Said Caesar never, you know, didn't love himself. He felt uh, he was an outsider. Someone who only at the end of his life was able to, to figure out and find peace. But you can go down the line, you know, with this type of thing. And
1: well, right, and not every comic has a fully tragic interior. True. But I will say that when we're young and i'm i'll own it mm-hmm. that we are we're using humor we're using we're building an armor to mm-hmm. protect ourselves from attacks from the outside mm-hmm. and you can survive that way all your life but it doesn't protect you from the attacks from the inside your own awareness of yourself or self-sabotage or choices you're making mm-hmm. and i know that sounds like some kind of babble, but really in the end, and this is for all creatives, if you don't love yourself or mm-hmm. accept your work or go on the journey without constant judgment, mm-hmm. it's very, very difficult to have any output in your work. Absolutely. Because you have a tendency. I know people who sit down and they say, I'm writing every day. Well, the first thing they're doing is sitting down and rereading yesterday's page and going, oh, this is crap. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They They can have a really hard time moving forward mm-hmm. because they're Busy, they got the editor hat on all the time. What are people going to think of me?
0: Right. Well, and to go back to what you're saying, there is something about you have to deal with the inside stuff eventually. I think a lot of, in my life, I've been in, like you, you've been in live theater, live performance, writing your whole life. Uh, It's taken me up until recently to kind of deal with the interior uh, landscape. And uh, these kind of performances and these these souls that I've taken on have been a great catharsis. And healing in some part for me as a performer. And so to be able to bluster and rage on or lust and, and to work out all my stuff has been, a, you know, we call it a blessing. You know, it's been a great part of my life. And now I sit here and we have a lot of time and to think more about what it all means and what we want to do next and, and what it's been all about. Has it been worth it? And uh, how do I want to approach it? The next time I am creating, developing a role or writing a new piece or facing an audience, you know, and you, and there's something about also the commitment level. You talk about playing these huge characters. There's no halfway, as you know, uh, you know, uh, to take on a, a wildly, you know, demonstrative character. You have to go in full bore. You have to do that or people smell it. The audience smells it. You're, the cast smells it your the, the, the creative team smells it there's no getting around it. I feel I am w- an introvert by nature I think I'm, I'm a, I was I was a self-conscious kid, a shy kid and so every time I walk out there and do it whether it's the Groucho show that I've done for you know 35 years and thousands of performances, it still feels like I'm jumping off a cliff it's not it I feel a lot of performers are similar in that respect that they have, that nervousness still. and But I always, I'm always nervous. I I know I'll get through, but there's a part of me thinks this might be the night that it all comes crashing down. I don't know <laughs> if you can relate to that at all.
1: Because you're a one-person show, do you peek out through the curtain to see <laughs> what the size of the crowd is or any of that? Absolutely. Or do you
0: do that still? Oh, my God. You know, and, and I'm almost <laughs> embarrassed to admit that, Pat. I still, after thousands of performances, I'll crack through the curtain. And, you know, I was thinking about it. I was driving around earlier and I was thinking about I was thinking about Hal Holbrook and all the venues that he has played as Mark Twain in Mark Twain Tonight. And I have played hundreds and hundreds of the same venues. And when I was out alone on the road, feeling like, what the hell am I doing in Hillsdale, Michigan? And... Is anyone going to show up? I was just reading about Hal, and he, you know, 1966, he did a performance and someone, one of his fans wrote and said there was only 15 people in the audience, which seems hard to believe since he sold out houses, 2,000 plus seats, certainly in the, you know, after that, after it was on television, it was televised on CBS in 1967.
1: Let me give a little context to our listener. Hal Holbrook, who uh, we've lost recently and in the arts at 95 years old made a living from when he was about 29. He became Mark Twain, and he did the readings and the performances of Mark Twain in a show called Mark Twain Tonight. And as you said, it played the Broadway stages, and it ended up on PBS. And really, ultimately he morphed into twain as he got older he wore less makeup his hair took on the twain and and to watch him perform that piece first of all it was never really the same he had 15 hours of of readings of twain that he could select from if he if he started to lose interest in an area or felt something was more relevant he would bring new pieces in and i do know that he more than paved the way on the boards of all of these jewel box theaters that when you or I walks into them, I can feel the original Twain. I can feel Hal Holbrook. I can feel there's there's places that Houdini's played. It's our sanctuary. It's mm-hmm. It's essentially a theatrical church.
0: Right. And I think of him, and I'm thinking of him a lot these days, You know, he played, you know, early on crummy places. Uh, He played outdoors where he couldn't get their attention. If his book, his autobiography is worth reading of your listeners. It's called uh, Harold, the boy who became Mark Twain. And I guess my point was he was the same way. And he's the master. He did the show for 62 years. But yes, I peek through the curtains. I want to make sure there's an audience there, where they're sitting, who looks like they're having a good time already, who can I pick on, who can I play with? Who should I avoid or should I go for them anyway to, to cause some tension because tension is great. My anger, the angrier I am, the funnier I can be sometimes and the more rageful I am, the funnier I could be depending on the circumstances. I still love hearing the buzz of an audience through the monitor in the dressing room. You know, like you, I care about the experience uh, that the audience has. I want them to feel like they're part of it. I want to feel like I'm connecting with them. I want to, in my case, in the case of the Groucho show, An Evening with Groucho, I want them to feel his spirit. I'm not Groucho. I'm not exactly like Groucho. My goal is to channel him as much as I can. Uh, You know, there are other people that may sound more like him or look more like him, but I feel like I've got his, you know, my job is to channel his spirit and also share my skill as an Im- interactive crowd worker, which is something that's come out of doing the show, is working a crowd.
1: It's what I call wit points, you know, just the idea to be in the moment, to be able to, uh-huh. to strike and be relevant and bring people along. That's something that I, I wanna get into more detail, but I do wanna you know, resalute Hal Holbrook for mm-hmm, another thing, sure. which was when I very first started the business of the theater business, I was doing a one-man show, and I needed some examples of what a tech writer was. Mm -hmm. And I ended up with three of them. One of them was Hal Holbrook's tech writer, which I was fascinated by the detail of the choice of the furniture, of the rug, of the podium, and, and what had to be in the dressing room and how it had to work. I mean, he would walk into those places and sit down and apply his own makeup. And it was a very big gift to the audience in every way when he did that. And his attention to detail was there. And they'd go, oh, we may not have the right monitors. We may not have the right backline equipment. But Hal's writer really helped me lay out, oh, okay, I'm thinking about theater. I have to think about my lights. I have to think about my sound. I have to think about my wardrobe. Is there an iron to prep my suit? Mm -hmm. All of those things are things you don't really think of as a performer until you have to produce your own event.
0: Right. Absolutely. Well, well it, it, there's a great documentary that came out on him recently That's I hope your listeners will check out. Holberg Twain, I think it's called. But uh, Scott Teams is the uh, the director. And, and you see how in his late 80s, warming up that whole part of it, you know, literally physically warming up as he's approaching 90, lifting weights, doing yoga. You see him working with the lights like you and I do. He's sitting in the audience, you know, making sure lights are adjusted and focused. And he never, it's not like he's some star that comes in there. He's a craftsman who's looking at every detail. And as you say, the writer reflects the detail as well. You know, I learned, just keep it simple. I never asked for much. Just give me coffee, tea, a few, just enough to give me nourishment to get on the the stage. But I was never a pig that way. You know, I just thought it wasn't about having a buffet before the show or, you know, I'm not even thinking about food. I'm thinking about not getting nauseous. <laughs> you know, Hal is one of those guys and beyond that role as you know he's got one of the greatest careers period
1: well there's so many moments when he played the uh stage manager in Thornton yeah. Wilder's Our Town and so the, mm-hmm. he, he, you know he has so much gravity to his voice and his performance and his warmth
0: he's a very generous person too and i had the great uh, honor of befriending him and and being a pal of his the last 7 years of his life and a lot of performers i can be bitter or default to that protective territorial way and not not how how and maybe he was at a point in life where he could do that maybe it was different when he was 55 and someone else was doing a twain show and he'd get litigious you know he didn't you know but i wasn't a threat i was a friend and he and he was encouraging and the greatest thing one of the most memorable things he said to me pat was in a, in a note, keep it going. And that is a profound thing to hear from You know, In other words, he knows how damn hard it is to keep it going. It's absurd what we do. It is absurd to go around, and I thought about that, to, to go around the world playing make-believe, trying to convince an audience that you're the funniest man in the world, or anything for that matter. That takes a great deal of... <laughs> Madness, as he said, you know, and that's what he said, you and I, he said, he, he described me as kind of crazy, like he was, you know, and he, he used the word desperate desperately needing to do it. Not desperate in a pathetic way, but he, desperately needing to share these lives. And I have a desperate need to share that particular life of this great, who the man who I think is the funniest man that lived, Groucho Marx.
1: You were a tremendous steward to Groucho Marx's content and life, but you, as I understand, were somewhat mm-hmm. discovered by, it was its son, Arthur. How old were you when you were selected? Arthur had written the An Evening with Groucho. Sure.
0: Um, Gra- there was a piece that existed called Groucho, and it had tooled around the country, it had played at the, what, the Westwood Playhouse, which is now the Geffen in Los Angeles. And Gabe Kaplan, the great stand-up, performed it. And it was recorded for, it was one of the first HBO specials around 1981 or so. It actually it was devised, not as a play, but as a piece that was to be filmed, and it was. And I saw it. Uh, I saw it when I was in college, and it was written by Arthur Marx and Robert Fisher, Groucho Marx, son Arthur Marx. I loved that it existed, but I looked at it, and it was wonderful in that it took Groucho's life from middle age to old age. The most interesting material at that time was the material in which Groucho Marx was kind of semi-doddering, yet still caustic uh, octogenarian, elder statesman of comedy and uh, you know all that great you know a middle age is when you go to bed at night and hope you feel better in the morning old age is when you go to bed at night and hope you wake up in the morning <laughs> stuff like you know those kind of and that was the kind of material that was in the show at the time and and remained but i i got to be honest i looked at it and i was 20 years old i thought i could i think i could do this i think i can sing it i can dance it i can i can play this character i loved him i saw groucho marx as an old man live but I saw a lot of our heroes as old men live, as you probably did, from George Burns to Bob Hope to mm-hmm. the, the list goes on. And uh, I made a study of them. They fascinated me. I wanted to see how they were dealing with audiences uh, in their later years fascinated me. How does like a, a, a matter of survival, using humor, as you were saying earlier, to protect yourself. And, and I saw them do it to protect themselves uh, as when they were older and they would take time, How the, the use of time, using the cigar. When they were forgetting a line, how they covered, how Holbrook would cover, I saw him toward the end, a memory lapse. I saw him hold it and make turn it into drama this like a five second or longer pause, which I knew he didn't have I knew he didn't have the line. The honest didn't know. But anyway, so to get back to that story, I looked for I started looking for a, a script that I could do in college at USC. I had a friend, uh, you know, Named Paul Weselowski, who was this Marx Brothers archivist. And he, I said, Do you know any show I can do? I want to do a show as a senior project at USC. He goes, Well, you know, uh, this gentleman passed away. His name was John Bay. And he was married to Elaine Stritch, the great legendary diva of Broadway, who was in the show Company. Uh, one of the greatest musical stars of all time. Now, I barely knew who she was. I was t- 19, 20 years old. I would, I did get the the album of Company and played it in my dorm.
1: When she saying this song, "Ladies at Lunch"? Was her one of her big hits?
0: Right, here's to the ladies at lunch. Right, and, and and so I found myself communicating with Elaine, you know, via typed letters and phone calls, and eventually she let me use the script. That's what evolved into my show, "An Evening with Groucho," which I've done everywhere. So that's how it started. And so I put the show on first in a church hall, 10 minutes from where I live, at St. Rita's Church Hall as a tryout for my school production at USC as my senior project. And I was thinking about that today. And I'd be there in the middle of the night for hours with the tape recording, listening to Groucho's voice. It it felt like a sacred moment. I was literally under the church, under an altar working on a show about this great Jewish comedian. And there was a wonderful juxtaposition in play here. It, didn't, it So, and then, <laughs> and so I broke it in in a church hall, St. Rita's church hall. And, and I invited Groucho Marx's son, Arthur Marx. And I invited Groucho Marx's daughter, Miriam.
1: How did you contact them? Like, how did you know what to make that invitation?
0: I'll tell you. And, and the other person I'll mention was there was Maury Riskant, who co-wrote the Marx Brothers classics, A Night at the Opera and Animal Crackers. Now, you may know this person, but the person that gave me all these like a 100 contacts, was Robert Whitey, Bob Whitey, who, uh, you know, was a director-producer on Curb Your Enthusiasm and produced uh, the first documentary on the Marx Brothers. We're still friends 35 years later. I'm still asking for uh, favors from him.
1: But they accepted your invitation and came to your show. They as did.
0: So imagine doing this show and in the audiences, two of Groucho's kids and one of his writers. I did the show, Pat, and... There were 500 people in the audience. There was 500 people there, and they stood up. They loved it. And Arthur was there, and he said, Frank, if I ever do a show about my father again, I'd like to use you. And I graduate, and within three months, I'm in Kansas City in a dinner theater playing Groucho and getting paid. And that show was rewritten. The Gabe Kaplan show was rewritten to encompass more of a timeline that took Groucho from age 15 to 85. And I was 22, 23 years old, and I was able to take that on Uh, The kudos came because I was a 22, 23-year-old playing, you know, an old uh, 85-year-old comedian. No one thought I could pull it off. And I had great empathy. I loved older people. I loved grouching as a man. I loved my grandparents. I was just short of being a gerontology minor, you know. So I had a great sensitivity to those who were getting frail, those people I loved who I saw in weakened states. And I saw that happen You know, Hal lived to be almost 96. To see a giant start to be affected by the ravages of age is uh, painful. It hurts.
1: You also are an old soul in terms of the humor you're attracted to. Yes,
0: that's true. Right? As as are
1: you. (laughs) Well, (laughs) (laughs) mine's nostalgic and that's its own poison, but Mm -hmm. because everyone thinks I'm living in some sugar-coated candy land. Mm -hmm. But I I made some choices when I was writing some of these pieces. Mm -hmm. And I thought to me, sometimes you want the drama in the play and sometimes you want to escape in the play. To me, Mm -hmm. I looked at the outside world as the news is bad enough, the stock is dropping, the people are whatever. So following 9-11, a a show like The Wonder Bread Years was essentially comfort food Mm -hmm. for people to come together at the theater. It wasn't completely frivolous. It was more a prescription to escape for 90 minutes Mm -hmm. from that. I mean, the trick within that show, The Wonder Bread Years, was about humanity, about it doesn't matter if you're 65 or you're 25, there's still a time we were five. We have a common denominator. doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. What did you watch on TV? What crazy cereal price did you have? Whatever. <laughs> and so it was a little bit more about putting a mirror up to reflect that the people next to you had the same experience as a kid. They had the same mm-hmm. crappy uh, Halloween costume. When you're a kid, everything is wide-eyed, curiosity, discovery, adventure, abandon. There's no real rules. As you get older, you take on responsibilities and trust and issues and everything becomes the weight of the world. When you're a kid and you see Mm -hmm. a a firefly, it's a magic trick. You want to catch it in a jar and run with it. And as an adult, you're like, get the pesticide. We got to clear the field. Right. The wonder gets taken out of our life a little bit by the system. Schools, say, no, you don't get to play now. No, you don't Mm -hmm. get to talk in class. No, you don't get to sit by your buddy. You know, it's like they need to button us down. (laughs) And I think many of the people that I know that have succeeded as Imagineers and all these other creative jobs have still that same playful spirit. Right. And they're not rebels. They just know how to enjoy the moment. They look at the world through a different lens, and I think they're envied. When people watch you do Groucho Marx, they, they just see the freedom. They see a freedom in your physical body. They hear it when you're singing in your voice. Right. When you use that toolkit of being able to, somebody responds to something new. As Groucho, you're able to move in for the kill, right? You make that funny moment. And Groucho, when he wasn't in a Marx Brothers movie, when he started You Bet Your Life radio television game show type of thing, that was just a forum for him to be witty. I believe that you have done it again with your uh, character, Caesar. We've sort of fleetingly mentioned, but the the vehicle is Teatro Zanzani. You're the central character and the the person that introduces people to the world, right? Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about that. I'm sure it liberated you from a lifetime mm-hmm. of playing Groucho where people thought maybe, hey, this guy's only Groucho. You created this character from nowhere
0: right it's mine it i own it and
1: it's it's it emerged from me sure. you know from my heart
0: from my loins from <laughs> well but just as
1: groucho yeah. created captain spaulding yeah. yeah
0: tell me about your loins now please you're the only one who cares to know i don't even care to know quite frankly at this point what's left of my loins the way this came about is i was as doing a benefit of an evening with groucho in woodland hills and it wasn't you know i was getting i i didn't have any work going on at the time i, I and i was married at the time and um no kids but it wasn't going great to tell you the truth it was a kind of bit of a nader. but I, so i did this benefit and i remember not being happy with the circumstances being frustrating and moving this nine foot grand piano a half hour before the show and going oh, you know it just wasn't an ideal circumstance and i just felt like and i had i was getting angry about the kind of the, the, you know, how to sometimes you go to a venue and it's ideal. And sometimes it's a little challenging. And this one was, I was not in a great place at the time, but I did the show and because I was angry. I got gigantic laughs as Groucho and in the audience was, um, Stu Gordon, you know, Stuart Gordon, he was a director, producer, honey, I shrunk the kids was his creation. He's a, he was in the audience and he saw me and I did a, a great deal of improv that day. And uh, he told his friend, Norman Langell, you should hire this guy. There was a slot for a, as you say, a master of ceremonies who does a great deal of improv. That's how I got the role. You will back this up. Basically, work begets work. And and I've gotten all these interesting jobs from doing, sometimes jobs I had no interest in doing or was getting five bucks to do at an equity waiver theater in in Los Angeles. I did a $5 show and that turned into, I can't tell you how much how many creative experiences and how many dollars resulted from me saying yes just say yes
1: it's also worthy to pause and tell anybody who wants to be an actor or any kind mm-hmm. of performer that those moments like people go oh that audition was right. a terrible i i'm not going to go read this is a stupid product whatever mm-hmm. that casting director cast for a lot of products mm-hmm. for a lot of movies for a lot of things like i went to something once <laughs> I can't sing, by the way, and you know it, and everyone else knows it. I cannot carry a tune. Like my mom would say, Listen, when everyone sings happy birthday, just don't, just mouth it, right? Like I'm really, really not a good singer. So I get this strange audition in New Orleans to go, and they want me, they go, Come, you don't have to prepare anything. And Mm -hmm. well, when I get there, the guy says, All we want you to do is to sing a song. And I'm thinking to myself, "What? What, What? What? Like, I could juggle, I could do I got a million things. I'm not going to sing a song. He said, well, no, just sing a Christmas carol or or happy birthday or Edelweiss, like something inconsequential. Right. And I sing it so badly. And I leave with my head mm-hmm. between my knees. I'm in the car going, I should have just not gone in there. And an hour later, I get called. You got the part. And I go, what the? hell is this guy's problem? Like He goes, everybody tried so hard to sing well and whatever, and you were yourself. And I could see how terrified you were and what your emotions were. Hmm. And I said, do I have to sing and sing? He goes, maybe a little. but And I go, no, 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 but I don't sing. He goes, I don't care. It's not about the singing. It's about the relationship with your wife and a Christmas from long ago. But it taught me this great lesson of just be yourself, do your best. Mm-hmm. Why do you even go? If you're not going to give it your all, why do it? Why even invest in putting the money in the meter to go to the thing if you're not going to try? And it all leads to something. Those great showcases, and we we are mm-hmm. both very lucky to be able to be on stage away from all other comparison. Right. You sink or swim in your own life draft. It's a runaway stage coach until you come off stage.
0: Well, I get it. It's like I'm always said, "Do you want a backstage crew?" I, say, I don't need a backstage. Why? I'm I'm on there the whole time, but it's something else. I'm thinking of Brian Cranston, who talks about the audition process and famously saying, "I stopped worrying when I saw it as a performance. I just do it. I have a good time with it. It's a show. It's an opportunity to do what I do in front of a casting agent, and um, then I let it go." But basically, he was just using it as a chance to perform when he wasn't performing. Look at it as a as a performance and find the joy in it and let go of the fear and the angst that is often around the process of auditioning. I thought, wow, that was really... I started seeing things differently when I heard that. It's like, what a great thing to think about it. See it as 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 a performance.
1: And also, oftentimes, when you're early in it, you're... Need to get the job. That desperation, all of that comes mm-hmm. through. And I'm telling you, I for years in L.A. auditioned for commercials. I would get down near the place, and I would be so angry at that I couldn't get a parking spot. I walk in, I go, "This is great tasting tuna," and yeah. they go, "Jesus, this guy really, really <laughs> hates tuna." You know,
0: <laughs> it works that way, doesn't it, Pat? When you can let go of some of that that angst and and not put that pressure on yourself to deliver. Just be.
1: I tell my friends that are singers and songwriters, tell me a story. <laughs> Sing this. What, what does this song mean to you emotionally? Don't care if I like it or don't mm-hmm. like it. Communicate to me. Those are the people we're listening right. to. We're leaning into them.
0: Teatro Zanzani, this circ show, which takes place under a hundred-year-old tent, is a vaudeville. I've always wanted to be a vaudevillian ever since I've read about vaudeville when I was a boy. And now I was going to be able to hopefully live out this fantasy. So, and I was going to be the lead comic in this form that I had no experience with. I am cast to create, a, I'm asked to create a character. I'm not a sketch player, but I've been asked. So I go to the show. They fly me up to San Francisco from Los Angeles. And I watch this show in 2000. And I'm watching this amazing improv interactive actor, my name is Kevin Kent, who does Kevin Kent does a lot of comedy and drag. I mean, in, in, in more of the Dame Edna, who, who is one of my heroes, Dame Edna Vane. And I watch him play, I watch him play a matador. I watch him play a uh, Judy Holliday-like character. I mean, he plays like three different, he has three different sets. He's about a third of the whole night. That's a three hour night. And, and
1: you're meant to fill in for this? Yeah, like so this I'm, is his spot?
0: So, so I'm watching this guy kill it. And he's working, <laughs> and he's kissing men, and he's kissing bald heads. And the audience, he's te- he's you know he's one of those guys, and you do it, Pat, and I hope that I do it. He takes you on that journey, and you take the ride full on, and your jaw is dropped watching someone like that. And I'm thinking, they want me to be in drag, they want me to wear lips, you know. I thought, well, I guess he wa- they want me to do his act because I I couldn't conceive of what this was. Now around him, Pat, are acrobats, jugglers, singers. Dancers. It's hand-carved wood inside. It's velvet. It's like a, a kind of this elegant Moulin Rougey y vibe to it. It's exquisite,
1: but with a, with a, like a upscale uh, five star dinner, it's, right? Yeah, like the whole thing is. It's like it was yeah.
0: like a it, was, it wasn't an inexpensive evening and a full band and beautiful lighting. This was like a Broadway take on a vaudeville in the in the round so you are standing in, in a in an old spiegel tent in, it's called a spiegel tent and and it's right. gorgeous and you walk in and you are lost you're transported it you feel like you've gone back in time and it's sexy and fun and you're laughing and you're crying and you're all your senses are being gratified and you know from your know, taste smell, t- everything is happening. It's it's the very best of what theater has to offer. I think so. I think so.
1: Transporting, transforming. And I'd
0: never seen anything like this, Pat, in my life. I've seen a lot of theater, but this was new to me. This was something that came out of Europe, and now it's something you see. Absinthe is a version of it. It's kind of a, a much naughtier version, but a very successful show, Absinthe, in, in, in New York.
1: In, in Las Vegas, right. And it's a combination of a series of review acts mm-hmm. that are pieced together by other character performances. And you have to now create something. What, what? Yeah, so I don't know. I'm, I
0: work with a director, a guy, a guy named Stefan Habes, who was a great teacher of clowning. And we became great friends. And I was scared to death. I mean, I mean literally trembling. And he says, you can do this. He believed in me. That was key. He thought I was a funny person. He thought I could handle the crowd. He thought I could survive in the center ring. It's a nine-foot diameter playing space. Everything is happening. From trapeze acts to the comedy within this nine foot diameter. In the round, right? In the round. And so honestly, it's you do it, the good stuff stays, the bad stuff goes. And if you're lucky, you're given at bats. And I sometimes I bombed and and I was, I didn't really have an act. My act evolved from the plane. And my guy was uh the most brash. In-your-face kind of guy, you know. In terms of, he was accosting, he was insulting. But I, I learned something from the Stephen Hayes. He says, "Frank, if you're going to slap him, you got to hug him." So I'd say, "Oh my God, that is the most disgusting shirt I've ever seen, but it looks perfect on you." Or something, <laughs> you know. That that's not a joke, but that's the sense. Oh my! And I would go and I would describe, you know, you know, is that kind of teasing. Uh, humor that I have always loved and and that and and you get good at picking people you hope that can play with you and you avoid the ones that don't want to be messed with which is something
1: that I'm sure you're I know but I'm a gentler character than you that's true <laughs> I kind of go for the double hug approach <laughs> That's a pleaser
0: in me, but right. it's like it's right. you but know. I had I was working a lot of stuff out, and so I was realizing that all of my darkness, all you know, talk about anything involved with sex and sexuality, and and the lack of kind of you know all those vices that I was trying to keep in tow to keep contained were coming out, and I didn't know stuff. I was coming up with stuff that was like it was stream of consciousness, and it, it was scary. And audiences loved it. And so I, it took me a little while. It took me a couple of years. I've been with this company for 20 years to kind of find my momentum with this. And he be, I became this guy that people live through vicariously.
1: Done in a joyful way. Ta- ta- let me just paint a little picture and you can fill in the gaps. But he is a hes a smoker and he's a cocktail drinker and he, yeah. w- he wears a smoking jacket and he's he a has sort of a he pompadour these- hairdo. And he's, mm-hmm. I don't know, the choice of having a birthmark the size of Connecticut <laughs> on your face.
0: <laughs> well, it's very Mel Brooks in that it starts small and gets bigger by the end of the night. I, oh, I it does? Yeah, yeah. Okay.
1: So, <laughs> he's just
0: un- un- unhinged. And people I've learned and we live through those kind of guys. I I did with Groucho as a boy and I still do. It's like, what did he say? What did he do? He did that. You're kidding me. You can do that and you can not only do that, you can be lauded for it. You can be praised for it. I I think early on, I didn't trust everything. I think as a boy, my default was, I think, I wanted to go to fantasy, never left it. So I loved reading and I loved plays and I loved puppet shows. And I never left that. I didn't want to be in finance like my father was. I didn't want to be a stockbroker. It seemed sour to me. And uh, I didn't, I, I realized that I avoided really being a, a part of, in my mind, society in a traditional way or what was expected of me. I didn't, I don't come from it. And so this wasn't a way of, of dealing for me with life and, and trying to not jump off a bridge, but be accepted for this kind of madness.
1: You talk about being an introvert, but mm. if somebody looked at your <laughs> list of characters—the Max, Print, and the Caesar, and the Grouch—whatever—they right. go, "This right. guy is as extroverted as they come."
0: Right. right. Some people go to ask my kids, "Is he funny? Like, is he like that at home?" And I'll be k- kicking my legs up, I'm prat falling, and I'm yelling and screaming to the top of my lungs, and and sweating and hugging and thrusting, and they go, uh, "No, he's not." It's like, yeah, really. My father goes around thrusting his pelvis and doing a groucho crouch walk. I mean, they kind of marvel sometimes at the idiocy, I think, but they've learned to play along in a very, very sweet way with it. But part of me uh, doesn't mind. I've been on the road like you have for so many years. I'm kind of don't mind just sitting in one place. How many flights have you taken, Pat, over the last 30 something years? How many hotels have you stayed in? You can't even count them, can you?
1: No, I can't. But I have to say, I enjoyed I enjoy them. Mm-hmm. Even though sometimes it's work, like it's to me more work to get to the job than to do the
0: job. Well, apps, I agree wholeheartedly. Most I I not. say the same thing. We was like the easy part is the show. That the trying part is get, is getting to the show, getting to the theater. But I will yeah. say,
1: in pandemic times, mm-hmm. it is something that I very much miss. I miss the plane. I Mm missed the hotel. I missed the restaurant. I missed the after drink. I miss all of those little things that I worked very hard to, to free myself up from carrying buckets of cement. When I was younger, I was like, I'm not going to work hard labor. I, whatever I have to do, no matter how much I have to write or practice or perform. I'm going to make enough money so someone else can fix my car. Like I don't want to get my hands dirty or yeah, whatever it was, yeah. right? And now yeah, everything yeah. is pulled back. The sheen of all the travel and all the theater and all of those things. And we are looking at ourselves in the mirror, saying what it, what's important. And it is impacting the way I write. It's impacting my next choice. It's impacting uh, these conversations. I'm I'm connecting with people mm-hmm. who I feel get it. In some ways, they've been on the journey. And, you know, only people who have fought in the war can really Mm -hmm. nod without saying anything and and know exactly, I've been there. And that is, for any industry or any subculture, rookie cops at a coffee shop don't talk about everything. They just, there's Mm -hmm. a knowingness to it, I say, as a non-rookie cop. But, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. it is, rodeo clowns, you know how they, everybody knows, we all have one ball, you know what I mean?
0: Which kind of brings me back to... uh Listen, we have the greatest gig in the world, and I, I couldn't feel more fortunate. You know, it's what a, what a job we get. It's a it's sheer joy. But there are times I, I remember thinking, oh, man, I, I don't know if this, am I going to keep doing this? Can I keep doing this? And I would think of Hal Holbrook. And, and because he was at that highest caliber, I thought, boy, I'm in good company. He has made a choice to live on the road. He doesn't have to do this anymore. He's got money. He's got everything he wants in the world, you, seemingly but he chooses this beautiful tradition of live theater. And I think we bonded over that. We, I love the live experience. He loves it. You love it. And I've always, I felt like an anachronism 35 years ago. It's like, how long can this go on for? And it keeps going, and it'll keep going after this pandemic blows over completely.
1: I think audiences have a need for it. They need a catalyst, not mm-hmm. just to escape, but they live vicariously through the the vehicle of that character of the experience. What people really take for granted is the importance of a live community event. That moment that something different happens that night.
0: Take note of what is affecting you. What are you drawn to? What are you gravitating to? Make that your life. Make that your world. Don't be ashamed. You know, I, it took me a long time to really, I didn't come to admit I wanted to act. You know, I, I was lucky because I was discovered as you know by Arthur Marks in that moment. I don't know what would have happened. Maybe I would have gone into producing theater, went go to UCLA. But I do know that because of Arthur, I was able to go to New York and London, and that was uh, that was an entree into a lot of of theater, you know projects as an editor, as a writer, as a producer, as a uh, you know, it I was the best thing that could have happened, you know, but taking...
1: You, these- you learned every bit of the business. And I would say, hearing what you just said, that I, and I wouldn't say this to all performers, but I would challenge you to focus on that new original work and be closer to who you are because you're a great storyteller. All of those things you learned in all of those performances and all of those bigger than life characters and behind all those masks, it's... The Wizard of Oz. You're the Uh guy behind the curtain, and you don't really need that big, smoky character (laughs) telling people to go away. But only you can give yourself permission to that. I can tell, I can say to you, hey, I give you permission, Frank. But in the end, that's the biggest challenge is for you to stop being the warden of your prison, right? You got to let yourself loose. I know you have it in you, and I know that that's what's interesting to me about all good storytellers is that the more they begin to trust and respect themselves at doing it, it's super vulnerable. Crazy. There's been a lot of comedians now that have done specials that Mm -hmm. talk about something they've survived. I just tremendously admire their willingness. The the comedy almost comes naturally out of the pathos because it's the way we think and feel. The gift was given to you Mm -hmm. in a baton from Hal Holbrook. It was given to you by by Arthur Marks. So they mm-hmm. want you to run the last leg of the race.
0: Yeah, it feels that way, Pat. It's funny you're saying that. I feel that's where just where I am. It's a little scary, but I I wanna, you know, because I know where it's gonna take me a little bit. And I also don't know where it's gonna take me, which is even scary. But, you, you know, it's worth it, I think. I think it'll be worth it, but I'm on the precipice of, of this right now. I certainly have the time. So there's really no excuse, is there?
1: <laughs> Thank you to the pandemic for taking away all the excuses I have. I can't say I don't have time. I can't say, you know, you can't even say that to a friend. You go, I can't do it. Why? You're not doing anything. Mm-hmm. You're right. I'm not doing anything.
0: And my kids are teenagers. like I used to, you know, I got to take care of my kids. Well, they're taking care of themselves now. I can't even say I'm making lunches or, did they, you know, I am kind of miss it. But it's, I can't even do that. It's like, well, I got to drive them here and... That was a big part of my life when I wasn't on the road, Pat, and you know what I'm talking about, is that when I wasn't on the road, all of my attention was on them. It just was, and I had had to be, because I felt it, it was just warranted. I'd missed them, they needed it, and now this has been a gift this time with them.
1: That's the very truth, even for a stay-at-home mom who has some creative ideas, is that what we end up doing, and I adore my kids would do anything mm-hmm. for them, but I will say that we create this delusion in multitasking where we where we get the pleasure of getting something done or applauding ourselves or it's like, well, but today I did this and I went to the post office and the dry cleaner and the laundry and whatever. Like you can fill your days mm-hmm. like that. And many of those things, if you look at that, could wait another day. I'm just a big proponent of invest in your passion first. Don't let the day get robbed mm-hmm. from you even if it's a half hour a day right. or 45 minutes a day that you're doing that personal thing well, you know nobody gets in to see the wizard no how no way
0: right. i was going to ask you pat i having just seen your uh, your newest show permanent record do your other pieces go there at the end those last moments do you are you at that exposed and you're exposed in those last moments to a certain extent
1: <laughs> no they don't there was an evolution for me and in the beginning i did learn mm-hmm. to not go out on a laugh on some shows. I did go for Pathos or I did go for Wonder or I went for some mm-hmm. other thing, reconciliation of some brothers, mm-hmm. finding each other and so forth. And then the first step prior to this was that I wrote a Christmas show and I uh, w- was able to g- get emotional by masking it by writing a female character who was the lead. <laughs> and therefore I could infuse my feelings about death without me having to do it on stage. So that was like a mini step. It was sort of the bittersweetness about Christmas being the greatest Mm -hmm. time for some people, but if somebody has lost somebody, it's a reminder every year of the worst time of the year for that person. And having to sort of ride those rails was what happened in that show. And in Mm -hmm. this most recent show, the vulnerability was very difficult in the writing. It was very difficult in the rehearsing. I tried really hard to avoid it. And the, uh, the director who I chose, Dave Buckman, was... I asked him to make me accountable. I just kept saying, you can call bullshit on me or you can, I hired you for a reason and don't, just because I wrote it or I'm producing, like don't treat me with kid gloves. And he was good about that. But also I wanted really, uh, it was more of a a dare and it took me literally through all rehearsals and the first preview for me to realize if I don't go there, it's not worth it. The journey has been false to me. And so I rewrote the piece overnight after the first preview. I cut 25 minutes out of the show. I cut the intermission out. I streamlined Mm -hmm. it. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to talk about my dad's death or I'm going to talk about that, got to go there, right? I got to do it. I had a story to tell. It was an authentic Mm -hmm. story. I didn't care if they liked me or didn't like me. And that liberated me. Mm -hmm. I never felt so relaxed Walking out, I didn't have the nervous energy backstage. I just go, mm-hmm. all right, I got a story to tell. And it was that mantra, just tell the story, tell your story.
0: And another beautiful thing that you, if it's a slight digression, Pat, is that surround yourself with people that you trust, that you that will call bullshit on you, like this director. In my case, you know, Drea Weber, someone who says, you're good, but you could be better. And for almost forces you, shames you into making a shift, which she did, does with <laughs> me with the Groucho show. Uh, it's important to to gravitate to people that you trust, that are skilled, that are in a way like minded, but also have maybe a slightly different sensibility. You need someone who's coming from another angle at times to make you better, to push you. That's when a good creative partner can make all the difference.
1: Let me just wrap up by letting people know that Drea did uh, direct and assemble and edit your most recent film, uh, which is Frank Ferrante's Groucho, and we'll be watching for that. Where wherever it plays, when it comes out in whatever form. I just say for everyone, it is a masterwork in performance, in singing, in audience interaction. But Frank, my pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for sharing a love of all the greats that came before us and your performances that sort of show us the legacy of that.
0: Thank you, it's a treat. And I have to say, when I was watching your show, Pat, I was writing down all the improv lines because they're awesome. <laughs> I won't use them, but I had to like write them down so I can t- quote you to you the next time we speak. It's so damn funny. Okay.
1: <laughs> I'm going to be old man soon, and you could do the tribute show to me, <laughs> and then it'll be totally legal.
0: An evening with Pat Hazel. It's good. I can't wait. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> good. <laughs> Thanks, Pat.
1: All right. Frank, thank you for being a part of all this.
0: I'm a fan. Thank you so much. Appreciate it.
1: Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and you will always have an invitation to join us for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is a production of Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, under WhizBank producer Amanda Rosenberg, with editing by the surgeon of sound Casey Franco. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and technical wizardry from Delilah Lovejoy, Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's, on Facebook, or visiting our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. That's right, it's dot .fun, because .com is not fun. La, la, Cheers. La, 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 la. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of
0: your call.